0: or 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover the cover. Today, it's Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Stay with us.
1: Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money Every Friday Happy endings Are the rules So divide up Those in darkness From the ones who Walk in light Light them up for picture drop the shadow out
0: of mind. this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw today is Tuesday December the 16th uh, jingle bells here it comes get out the bells and whistles tiny Tim time Oh, I was thinking today, watching the television, watching the shoes aimed at the president's head. Does anyone remember a young man, a protester, uh, at the time of Tiananmen Square in 1989, June it was? What has happened to that young man? I believe that he was disappeared or that he... I just don't know what happened to him, Uh, stood in the middle of the road in front of a tank, Uh, all by his lonesome, oh, if only, if only more people had the courage to do what they feel, take those shoes and, (laughs) actually, it was not a, a serious attack, even if the shoes had hit the president. I don't think it <laughs> would have done him much harm. They were tossed more than thrown, but what I hear on the news now I haven't got it straight is that uh, the Iraqi journalist who uh hurled the shoes at the dog uh that he has internal bleeding that he's being beaten that he's in in jail. The Iraqis have him, of course he can get uh up to two years uh I think the beatings are what are frightening. I uh, don't know what's to be done. Call Amnesty International. Um, put in a call to Penn Writers. There's a International Writers PEN organization. Maybe Barbara Lee's office is the best place to call up and say, who do we call? You know, uh, UN. <laughs> I don't think it's any good calling the White House. <laughs> Got to get that guy out of jail because he did something that so many of us have been dying to do. My thought was that if we all would mail a shoe to the president, you know, with Christmas bells on it, uh, I was thinking last night of the uh, various choices. My first thought was to send um, children's shoes, a baby booty, because, of course, as Helen Caldicott says, a baby is a baby is a baby, and uh, many of them have died. Uh, the other thought that crossed my mind would be a big black boot. You remember the late, great George Orwell told us that uh, fascism, someone asked him what it would look like, what it would feel like. He said, oh, it will feel like a black boot hitting you or stepping on your neck over and over and over again yes the day of the black boot uh, in any case let us follow and find out what happened to the Iraqi journalist and see if his his symbolic act can stand in for some of the rest of us who feel the same way I don't know uh, they're wearing shoes at the belt I guess some of the young men in Baghdad I, I don't know whether wearing shoes is uh, a good idea let's let's play with that and see what happens uh now there's a couple of odds and ends I wanted to do today. I have this end of the year feeling all these loose ends and scraps drives me crazy. I must learn to focus. They told me that in school, but I think it's too late now. I had a couple of letters in the mail saying that the only thing I should talk about is Naomi Klein and the new left because of course naomi klein uh is writing the tradition of Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky. And she is everywhere. Yes, The Shock Doctrine is a terrific book. And there's another note. She's just all over the place. Uh, let's see. Let me just refer you. Refer you to A Profile in the New Yorker for 8 December. Outside Agitator by Larissa MacFarquhar, an exhaustive article on Naomi Klein. There she is, looking gorgeous. The button on her blouse says, Move the center. <laughs> Once again, that's the New Yorker for December the 8th, 2008. Uh, as I say, the New Yorker's just become my script, that and Harper's and the Atlantic. and Literary journalism seems to be all there is these days, I... I don't know when was the last time I read a novel. I've got to take it easy and go back to literature. I want to begin today with a few, just paragraphs, just a few lines from Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Fireside Chats. Uh, <laughs> it just struck me as ironic, you know. Uh January the 11th, 1944. This is about freedom from want. I was 11 years old. There I was in Tucson or in La Jolla. I'm not sure where I was that year. Yeah, either one or the other, Tucson, Arizona or La Jolla, California. Anyway, here is FDR in the fireside chats. He was on the radio. He said, it is time to begin the plans and determine the strategy for winning a lasting peace and the establishment of an American standard of living higher than ever known before. (laughs) Footnote here. Did you notice that George Bush said that our goal now in the Middle East is peace and freedom? Then the uh, uh, KQED report cut to a, shot of the Marines busting down a door in Baghdad. Very arty editing, I thought, yes. Uh, Okay, back to FDR. Uh, I just think it's nice to uh, find these little historic parallels. FDR went on to say, This republic had its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable political rights, among them the right of free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. They were our rights to life and liberty. We have come to a clearer realization of the fact, however, that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. He quotes someone, Necessitous men are not free men, unquote. Necessitous men. (laughs) People who are hungry, people who are out of a job, are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. We have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, The right of farmers to raise and sell their products at a return which will give them and their families a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to acquire protection uh, from the economic fears of old age, adequate protection from sickness, accident and unemployment, and finally, the right to a good education. Um, FDR goes on to say all of these rights spell security America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for all our citizens for unless there is security here at home there cannot be lasting peace in the world you got that George Bush that's my message to George Bush no peace without justice, George. I remember back in the 50s, uh, 10 years after this, this was uh, written, Eleanor Roosevelt went to the UN and she gave a similar list uh, of rights, you know, the right to a decent living, the right to a job, the right to work. Uh, <laughs> you know what they did with that. I I think it's interesting because, of course, we have exactly the same arguments and problems today. I was looking at um, a piece on Obama. Let's see. (laughs) The Republicans took one look at Obama and called him a socialist, right, because he said that it might be a good idea for everybody to have enough, you know, to spread the wealth. Uh, I was terrified that they would uh, chew up Obama Let's see, according to my favorite writer, uh, one of my favorite writers, George Packer, uh, the Republicans tried like hell, right, Packer says, they called Obama an elitist, a radical, a socialist, a Marxist, a Muslim, an Arab, an appeaser, a danger to the republic, a threat to small children, a friend of terrorists, an enemy of Israel, a vote thief, a non-citizen, an anti-American, and a celebrity. (laughs) Obama did not defeat the Republicans simply by rising above partisanship. Although his dignified manner served as a continual rebuke to his enemies and went a long way toward reassuring skeptical voters who weren't members of the cult of Yes, We Can, it turned out that the culture war in spite of Sarah Palin's manic gunplay, was or is largely over. Barack Obama won because he had a vastly superior organization, a steely resilience that became more evident in October than it was in January, for which he owes a great debt to Hillary Clinton, and his willingness to fight back uh, on ground on which the majority of Americans now stand. Let's face it, we are there. This is the guy that we were waiting for. Uh, let me give you a little bit more of this article because I think it's so right on. Uh, last night I was listening again to Obama's tapes, uh, Dreams from My Father, uh, the early autobiography. I like that better than The Audacity of Hope, which is an important book, but... The Audacity of Hope is a campaign um biography. Uh yes. Uh I think that uh, the thing to start with for most citizens is his autobiography because I find it so moving. <laughs> There's always always some white woman comes along, an English teacher to help out. I was thinking about that. Yes, his mother and his grandmother, but Anyway, Obama believes that the real problem with partisanship is that it's no longer pragmatic. After decades of the bruising fights in Washington, partisanship has become incompatible with effective government. In The Audacity of Hope, Obama writes, I believe any attempt by Democrats to pursue a more sharply partisan and ideological strategy misapprehends the moment we're in. He goes on to write, I am convinced that whenever we exaggerate or demonize, oversimplify or overstate our case, we lose. Whenever we dumb down the political debate, we lose. For it's precisely the pursuit of ideological purity, the rigid orthodoxy, and the sheer predictability of our current political debate that keeps us from finding new ways to meet the challenges we face as a country. Uh, let's see, George Packer goes on to say, partisan politics, defined merely as demagoguery or stupidity, is easy to reject. Doing so doesn't take us very far. It's kind of like calling on everyone to be decent. At its weakest, post-partisanship amounts to an aversion to fighting, a trait that some people who know Obama see in him. In the early months of the primary, Obama seemed almost physically to shrink from confrontation. That's why Hillary Clinton got the better of him in debate after debate. Just before the Iowa caucus, Sidney Blumenthal, friend and advisor to both Bill and Hillary Clinton, told me, that is the author, George Packer, it's not a question of transcending partisanship. It's a question of fulfilling it. If we can win and govern well, while handling multiple crises at the same time. And govern the Congress, then we can move the country out of this Republican era and into a progressive Democratic era for a long period of time. Sidney Blumenthal found Obama's approach to be ahistorical. I guess it's a simple hope that the past just could be waved away. Uh, Anyway, uh, the Clinton campaign cautioned him that he had no idea what was in store with him, right? <laughs> what was in store for him? I, I'm i not sure. I just know that the day of Newt Gingrich and that Orwellian language is over. Uh People, the masses of people, the citizens have seen through that BS. Uh, I think finally they wince, you know, when you use a word like moral, they want to know what you mean. Um let's see there's a guy called George Gilder. He was uh an economic advisor to Reagan. Uh he said that yeah, he said he didn't think that um equality was a, a moral imperative, right? <laughs> anyway, uh ask yourself uh what thinkers and ideas Reagan took with him when he went to the White House. Right, that was George Gilder, Milton Freeman, supply-side economics, and anti-communism, whatever in the hell that is. Bill Clinton's presidency was ushered in by a shelf of books and papers under the not entirely convincing rubric of something called The Third Way. I remember writing that down a hundred times and thinking, Oh, my God. The third way was espoused by policy wonks. They called themselves New Democrats. Uh, that's not neoliberals. That's New Democrats. I'm afraid these labels don't mean a damn thing. I remember doubling over with laughter once when Jane Fonda cautioned us never to say socialist, just to say economic democracy. I said that's all very well except that nobody knows what economic democracy means, not until they think about it, which most people are not willing to do. Of course, she's right in the sense that, uh, we have to use new language for old ideas because people were so burned, uh, shattered by what happened in the past, uh, Let's see, there's a bunch of books and ideas that a lot of people in the Obama campaign listed. Uh, the ideas that they hope will help shame the Obama, help shape the Obama presidency. None of them seem, uh, to give answers. Uh, I think that, uh, we can, we can accept that this president is a cerebral and literary guy. Uh, in the past, this has been not so good. Clinton played down his intellectual side. You know, it's the Adlai Stevenson problem. People don't, uh, want someone to talk over their heads. Uh, David Axelrod, the chief strategist behind Obama's victory, described, Obama's influences as uh, very eclectic. Axelrod went on to say, he's a guy who reads very widely. He reads opinions on the right and the left. He reads scholarly treatises of both sides. Footnote here, I remember being impressed when Bill Clinton confessed that he never finished anything, never finished a book, yes. He read at them. I've always done that, and... You know, some of us are ashamed because we just can't be bothered. If it doesn't grab us, you know, we toss it aside. Uh, Anyway, uh, Axelrod says that Obama is not in the left-wing or right-wing book club. He is willing to draw from everywhere. This is the crowd that I call the whatever works crowd. I'm with them. Uh, Some people think that this is Ah, what is that morally ambiguous, you know? The absolutists are the people who believe that you should have one idea and stick with it. You know the sort of people, uh, you meet them when they're 20 and they tell you uh, their ideas and then you meet them when they're 70 and they have the same ideas. Uh, Anyway, unlike Ronald Reagan, Obama has no clear or simple ideology. People who have observed him in meetings describe a politician who solicits advice and information from a variety of sources. He puts a high value on empirical evidence and has the self-assurance to reach his own conclusions. A word that comes up again and again from Obama himself and from those who know him is pragmatic. I believe I heard him use the word facts. Yes. <laughs> What is it? Deng Xiaoping used to say, let us seek truth from facts. What a remarkable idea. That was when he, Obama was talking about science the other day. Uh, facts, facts, facts. Uh, anyway, this wonderful article goes on to give us more and more details. Uh, I think, I think that a thinker in the White House is probably a good idea. Lincoln was a thinker. Uh, Lincoln urged his countrymen to think calmly and well upon a subject. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there be no object to hurry any of you in hot haste to a step which you will never take deliberately... That object will be frustrated by taking time, but no good object can be frustrated by it. What the hell is that about? (laughs) Anyway, that was before Fort Sumter. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Lincoln wrote a lot about an educated citizenry. So did Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Obama talks about something he calls deliberative democracy. That phrase appears in his book, The Audacity of Hope. Uh, I'm not sure. The Audacity of Hope was written during Obama's first year in the Senate with the clear aim of laying the groundwork for the candidacy. Uh, I'm not quite sure he's got hold of it. Uh, He's not like the Clintons. The Clintons are iconic baby boomers. Obama claims to have no dog in the culture wars. He does not feel compelled to defend or mend or end every piece of legislation passed when he was a toddler or decades before his birth. In hope, he writes, these efforts seem exhausted. A constant game of defense bereft of the energy and new ideas needed to address the changing circumstances of globalization or a stubbornly isolated inner city. Okay, I wish I had uh, time to read you more of this piece. Once again, I recommend to you the amazing New Yorker issue of November the 17th, the election special in which David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, sets forth his opinions of Obama and of Obama's books. And George Packer describes the new liberalism, uh... All I noticed this morning was the very bad manners of President Bush and his good wife. The um, Obamas, Michelle and Barack, wanted to move to Washington, D.C. two weeks early so that their daughters, Malia and Sasha, could start school with their schoolmates. They're going to a Quaker private school, which seems the proper choice. Uh, anyway, they requested... A residence at Blair House, uh, so that the girls um, could be in Washington for school, and the uh, the Bush the Bush family said no. Noblesse oblige—that's what it's all about, boys and girls. You know, <laughs> that's what I call style. Yes, um, the great, the late great Alfred North Whitehead once remarked that if you boil it all down finally in the end, uh, style is the ultimate morality. You know, Hitler's style was just just pretty god-awful, and uh, I'm afraid that the bad form that we see uh, in Washington, uh, I couldn't help but laugh at the president when he was flummoxed by the shoes, poor man. Uh, He looked so flabbergasted as if he just couldn't believe anyone would do anything like that. Uh, He tried to joke and say it was a size 10 shoe. I'm not quite sure, but I don't believe this man can be humiliated. I could be wrong. I wonder if you think George Bush was humiliated by those shoes Uh, let me know what you think I think he I think he's so into denial that he's just going to take off for uh, where is he going Veronica Preston Hollow Uh, yes and Jennifer I wanted you to know one of your uh, admirers called in and he suggested this is in reference to the shoe situation that we have a website called thisshoesforyou.com. Okay. And people should send in an electronic rendition of a shoe to George Bush. Okay, this shoes for you website. And then we'll figure out ways to make it symbolic. I just hope, as I said, that this journalist uh, is being protected, that somebody is trying to. Cover for him, or watch his back because it looks serious. Uh, they said internal bleeding from the beatings, which that scared me i I hope they don't hurt the man he's the only one well he's the man with the courage for the moment uh, yeah it is what it what is it it's something that's worth uh, worth doing, but I guess you know when you when you do these things, you have to be willing uh, to step up uh, those who resist have to be willing to take it uh, this guy obviously is I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 this has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw till Thursday morning go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can
1: are the root, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who picture Drop the shadow
0: The Women's Antique Vocal Ensemble, Wave, presents Shepherds Arise, featuring music of the Christmas season. The combined ensembles of Wave and the Schola Cantorum of St. Albert Priory will perform 9th century Gregorian chant and music by Monteverdi, Manati, and Rutter, as well as traditional Christmas carols. Friday, December 19 at 8 p.m., Montclair Presbyterian Church, 5701 Thornhill Drive, Oakland. $15 general, $5 students and seniors. Information at www.wav.org wavewomen.org or 510-233-1479. The Concert